Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we connect to our fiercest fuck community of survivors and badassery ensues. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a clinical psychologist and survivor, and I love to bring us together to share our stories as well as practical tips to recover and reclaim our lives. As a community, we have truly formidable power to change our world, so thank you so much for being here. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors of gender-based violence. Some of these discussions may be triggering and contain adult content. Please be mindful of your needs throughout. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor, everyone. I am super stoked for our conversation today. I have Justine Cross here with me today to talk all about consent. I have been looking forward to having this conversation with people for a very long time. This is going to be a very special episode. Thank you so much, Justine, for being here. Can you share a little bit about who you are? Yes, Kelsey, thank you so much for having me on. I am a professional and lifestyle dominatrix in Los Angeles. I am also an educator and I own a dungeon, Dungeon East, and I throw really amazing parties. (laughs) Yes, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm going to share a little bit about why I asked you here today because I think that at least for folks that like the uninitiated that don't quite understand why I would ask a kink educator to be on to talk about consent. I know for me with my experience, because I'm a survivor, and after I was assaulted, it kind of just felt like my whole body shut down and I was just very disconnected. Pretty much thought that things like sexuality, pleasure, or even just any experience of my body was never going to happen again because it felt like such a dangerous place in a way like the things that felt intimate or soothing or comforting or a way of connecting was kind of weaponized as an act of violence. It wasn't until it's like through the six degrees of social media that I was looking into stuff to talk about consent with my clients, because I'm a psychologist as well, and was wanting to have a better conversation than what we keep saying about like, it's enthusiastic, yes, and ongoing, it can be taken away. All of those things are really good, but it also felt like there's so much missing from that conversation Because we see, especially in heteronormative couples, that there's so much of this disparity, the orgasm gap and stuff like that around the sexual experiences. And so that's when I started to follow and talk with different kink educators about this. And the conversations that we're having around consent and negotiation and communication, the kind of safety and comfort that I just felt like descend on my body after reading this stuff and like considering it and thinking about all of these different things people were saying was amazing. And it was truly transformative to hear people talk about how experiences of relationships in our bodies could be not just fun and pleasurable, but actually like incredibly safe and an experience where a lot of healing and growth can happen ever since that I was like, this is the community that we need to be bringing in to talk to survivors about how they can reclaim their sexuality, how they can feel 
more ownership, but also celebration of their bodies, how they can connect back in with their pleasure and how they can feel safe doing so. And one of the things that stood out to me was I was just like, this kind of technique and this skill around discussing consent and understanding boundaries is applicable in like all areas of our lives and so useful. And I was just like, it, to me, it was, I was just stumped. I was like, how are we not talking about this everywhere? Because it's so powerful. That might be why, because people don't want us to know. But yeah, so thank you for being here. Can you share a little bit about how you discuss consent? What role does it play? For you. Thank you for saying all that. I think it's really important that we are talking about consent and negotiation and boundaries. I have many theories about like why we're not talking about that. One, because, you know, we're not really talking about sex and kink in productive and wonderful ways. Like I think half the country still has abstinence only sex education. And, yes. you know, that unfortunately carries over to like our talks about drugs and medicine, where we also are teaching basically drug abstinence education. And we're not talking about boundaries, consent and negotiation. And again, like, where are we learning these things? Well, we're really not learning them in school. A lot of colleges are teaching things about consent. And that's really wonderful. And I've been able to teach at a lot of college campuses and connect with the community. And I always ask them, what's your acronym about consent? And they always give me their acronym. And it's so cute and great and wonderful. But where are we learning about these things? Some, like our parents, but they didn't learn about boundaries, consent and negotiation because they would have learned it from their parents. Like our generation is hopefully teaching this to not only our children, but also our parents. So for me and my work, both as a professional dominatrix and lifestyle, so if people don't know what that is, professional means that this is what I do for my living and my career, as well as a lot of mainstream stuff. Like I very proudly and strongly identify as a sex worker, but quite honestly, most of my work is like in the mainstream and like, I'm an influencer, you know, all that thing. But lifestyle means that I do this in my personal life. So the conversation about consent always has to be there. It's not just about like what I want to do. It's what that other person wants to do. And we work out a Venn diagram of something in between that we both want to do together. And I cannot do something with someone if they are not enthusiastically consenting to it. And we're having a conversation about that. And that's what a negotiation is. And we're also discussing boundaries, not only the subs boundaries, but as well as my own boundaries, because it's important for a top or dominant to have their own boundaries as well. Absolutely. And I love how you're describing like the exchange that happens here, but also that it's about what do we want to have happen? That was one of the things that struck me as like, simultaneously, like, this is an amazing idea. And why is it never something that I thought about? The idea that consent includes not just what's okay, what's not okay, but like, what would be pleasurable to me? What kind of experience do I want to have? Like, what do I want from this experience? What do I want to share with this person or persons in this experience? And the idea of consent actually also being about almost like an invitation of like, I can step in and know that this experience is going to explore certain things. Can you share a little bit about that too? Yeah, I definitely think it's really important to know what it is you want for yourself. So then you can communicate that to yeah. somebody else. And I always, you know, again, I teach a lot of classes and they're not, I mean, unless I'm 
specifically working with a couple, I don't use couple only language. I say, no, this is about knowing what you want for yourself first, because you need to be able to know what that is. So you can communicate that to somebody else, because I always go through this little exercise, which we can play along at home, which is, hey, like who's ever talked to their partner or partners about what it is they want to do before they're having kink or sex? And maybe a couple people raise their hands. And then I say, okay, well, how many of us have tried to telepathically communicate that to the person that we're with of what it is we want to do? And everyone's like raising, I'm raising my hand too. I am raising my hand. I have done this too. I do this now. And then I say, well, how many times has that worked? Raise your hand. Obviously no one raises their hand. And then it really clicks for people. And I have a little worksheet on my website. It's called the Kink Negotiation Worksheet. And it's about one page of how to just think about what you want. And it's not a checklist like, yes, gags, like no paddles. It's like, how do you want to feel? What names do you like to be called? Not just like what marks are okay and stuff like that, but it's about like the feeling and like the energy you want in that play. But I have one for kink and BDSM as well as for sex. So, and also a holiday survival guide <laughs> when it's time for that. So it's just yeah. all these things like walking through for yourself, like what that means to you, but also like that can change and it should change and it will change with not only yourself at different periods in your life, but also with different people as it should and be comfortable with that change and, and embrace that change and understand that you're going to want different things at different times. And it's okay to want those things. And it's okay to ask for those things. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking, I was like, oh, what a wonderful way to dismantle patriarchy. We, especially under patriarchy and heteronormative values, really see sex and pleasure as something that's predominantly belongs to men, cis heterosexual men, that cis hetero women are supposed to just offer and deliver. And if they have pleasure in the process, it's still also under the gaze of that man. And how, with what you're describing, the origin starts within you of what do you know about yourself? What do you want? What do you need? What makes you feel safe? What makes you feel good? What's the kind of energy that you're wanting from this space? Then entering a space where you can co-create it with your partners around what that looks like. And just already in that process, even asking those questions is dismantling some of those systemic structures that affect the way that we experience our sexuality. And I think that's so powerful because it also really informs how rape culture just is embedded in everything that we do as well, especially, you know, with our bodies and how we engage with it. Thinking about like rape culture and, you know, how like, I should also mention I'm queer. So like my, and femdom. So it's like my circle is like nothing but dismantling the patriarchy and like female and queer <laughs> pleasure. So I'm just like, what, you know, when you talk about rape culture, it was something I wanted to bring up where it's like the cishet normative world. Rape culture is so deeply ingrained in the way that like we do not teach people to say no and we do not teach them. That is an acceptable one sentence answer. And it goes beyond things like kink and sex, which obviously our conversation is centered around, but it's like, I was having a, like, I don't hang out too much with the straight. So it's always like, in like an anthropological study where I'm like, oh, wow, look at them go, you know, you know, so I was having a dinner with one of my oldest college friends and her roommate, like her bestie in the city last year. And when I was traveling and she was complaining about how, oh, wow, I'm a bridesmaid at my coworker's 
wedding and I have to go to this wedding. And I said, oh, well, wow, that sounds really stressful. I said, is this your friend? Is it a really good friend? And she said, oh, no, it's not. And this is a person who had a very senior position. And I said, is she your subordinate or is she above you or is she like on the same? And she's like, no, she's under me. And I said, oh, well, why didn't you just say no? And she just looked at me like with like this face of like, it had literally never occurred to her to say no. And no one had ever brought it up to her when she was complaining about this. And I remember saying to my girlfriend later, I said, wow, this is like how rape culture permeates, where it's like, you don't feel comfortable saying no to sex. You don't feel comfortable saying no to a man. And you also don't feel comfortable saying no to a bridesmaid ask of someone that you're not even particularly close to that's also particularly problematic, which for a bunch of other reasons that she described later. And I just said like, wow, like just please everyone say no. (laughs) Everyone say no once today. Mistress tells you so, you know? (laughs) Yes, I love that. Especially like the innate discomfort, I think, especially as women in rape culture around having to prepare for how people respond to a no and the anxiety that we feel. I can speak for myself, the anxiety that I feel when I feel a no coming up inside of me. That's usually actually how I know that I want to say no to somebody is because I feel anxious and frightened in different ways. And I love the example you gave because it is generalized to all those. It's not really just specific to men in either romantic or sexual advances, but specifically just like women saying no in any situation, we have this socially ingrained pressure to show up for the other person's emotional reception of our rejection or our no and have to like buffer and make sure everybody's okay. And that was something that through my limited education and consent through kink that I really liked was the idea that you could enter into this space where there's so much trust that the other person is also taking care of themselves and that you are there because you're having a shared experience with them or with other people. But also that because of all of this negotiation and this communication, and it's really in depth, the amount of communication that happens that there's also this trust of like, I can let go and be totally at one in the moment because I do not have to take care of you. Like, and not in the sense of I'm completely ignoring you, but more in a sense of like, I can trust that you're going to communicate with me through this. I can trust that people are going to use different language, gestures, words to indicate what they want, what they don't want, when it needs to stop. We also know what's going to happen when it's going to stop all of that kind of stuff, it really sets up for people to have an experience of like true surrender into it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, well, it's very easy for me to say no. (laughs) I say no all the time. I like didn't have that issue. And, you know, but it's obviously very pervasive and for good reason. And it's like, I can't remember the quote where someone said like, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. (laughs) It's like scary, but true. And so sometimes a no is really dangerous, but I want to bring it back to like a nice, warm, fuzzy place where, you know, I don't know who came up with this in the King community. It wasn't me, but when you're talking to someone at a play party or negotiating something and someone says no, the response is, thank you for taking care of yourself and acknowledging what they said and 
assuring them that what they said was good. And I use that when I do a few different kinds of classes, practicing getting a yes, maybe a no out of people. And that's a response that I teach people when someone says no, and then everyone feels taken care of in that moment. And it's really beautiful. So please practice that as well. Practice your no and practice saying thank you for taking care of yourself. Because it is, again, it's like, I can't do the things that I do with people unless I have their consent and unless I know that this is something that they really want to do because I'm doing like some really cool fucked up shit with people. I can't do that unless they're like totally there and ready and willing. And, you know, there's a lot of acronyms in the community for this. There's SSC, safe, sane, and consensual. There's RAC, which is risk aware, consensual kink. But the one that I like better now is PRIC. PRIC stands for personal responsibility, informed, consensual kink. And I think that's actually the best one, even though the acronym is PRIC. Because the other ones, it's not putting as much responsibility on yourself. And the first one, it's like, you know, what's like safe, what's sane, that's very, you know, subjective. And then RAC, I think is pretty good. But I think PRIC is just a little bit better because it, it talks about, again, your personal responsibility. Because you are the first person who is responsible for your scene or your play or what's happening. And I'm not talking about like non-consensual situations that are like you walking down the street and something happens. I'm talking about like when you're having an interaction with someone that you know, whether it is a lover, a play partner, a friend, a coworker, a boss, like you're the front line. And this is why it's important to have some time where we sit with ourselves and say, what do I want? And it's kind of the easiest question, but also the hardest because people are not often ask that. And, you know, sometimes what we want is not respected or celebrated. Sometimes we have, unfortunately, partners that are not supportive or caring. We don't have friends that are supportive or caring. And when we state what we want, that isn't respected. And you should have people in your life that are respecting what you want, whether it's for small things like actually, like, I really need to take a walk right now. I need to take 15 minutes and just go take a walk. And can you watch the kids or can you start dinner? Or can we just have a minute by ourselves to like bigger things of whatever those bigger things are for you, buying a house, engaging in like a super cool BDSM scene with a dominatrix. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. Because what was speaking to me about what you were saying is that there's also this sense of acknowledging the others in, that we're in relationship with as actual humans, as opposed to objects we're acting on or that we're getting something from. And especially, you know, survivors have had the other experience of having been completely objectified and attacked and this violence being perpetrated against them. So then entering this space where they can have relationships with people or we can have relationships with people where we are recognized as a whole person with a mind and a heart and desires that matter to people by having those kinds of conversations, by having our wants and needs and our no's and our yeses and our like absolutely pleased, really honored and celebrated and how that echoes back that experience of, no, you are an actual person existing in this world that matters, that gets to, to exist and have these things. 
and to be cared for in this way. Yeah, definitely. It's extremely important to have these like absolutely fuck yeses, (laughs) (laughs) to have that enjoyment and, you know, really bring it back to the pleasure and like understanding of like what it is that you want and seeking out that pleasure for yourself. And, you know, it's like, yeah, all of those things are just so important. And that's why, again, I always bring it back to like, just, you know, thinking about what it is you want on an individual level and not thinking so much about like someone else's pleasure or society's pleasure or even society's rules, you know, in air quotes and what society or your culture thinks that you should do, which, you know, many cultures and religions are very deeply rooted in a patriarchal structure. And it's not what we should or could be doing. And it's an exciting time to go do different things now, especially after coming out of like the hardest collective time and people were forced to sit with themselves or realize like what worked for them or what didn't. And both in terms of, you know, their own bodies and their own pleasure and so many people experimenting more and saying, oh, I always wanted to do this and now I want to get out or realizing maybe their partner is not who they thought they were. (laughs) Like, you know, all of those things and really exploring. And I think it's a really exciting time to to do all that and have fun with it. Yeah. And I like bringing it back to that this can be something that's fun. I think there's part of like the patriarchal structure is seeing connection and sex and sexuality as like obligatory or duty bound in some way, which again, kind of comes back to the objectification. One of the things, this is a little bit of, not an entirely left turn, but like a slight left side. One of the things that I really loved learning about was aftercare. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about aftercare? Because I think this is something that for me, like really like completed the idea or just like the concept of consent in this type of experience and making it completely just like a completely wonderful surrendered experiences aftercare. Yes, definitely. So when you have a BDSM scene, like the scene is what we call the BDSM action. (laughs) There's always a before, there's that's like the negotiation, consent, all that. And then we have the scene. And then what happens after is, you know, whenever you decide the scene ends, whether you've reached a certain pain point or someone has an orgasm or whatever has been decided. So the aftercare is what is going to happen to bring the sub up from subspace. Subspace is something that can happen where a sub is in a sort of a trance-like state. They might be a little woozy. They might be a little like floaty and fun. So we want to bring that person back up to, unfortunately, reality. (laughs) So we got to bring that person back up so they're safe and able to do things like hop in a car and order groceries or whatever it is. And, you know, then the top can come back out of top space, which is I'm in and Dom space and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, we're in the universe. I mean, I kind of am, but I got to like come back to reality a little bit. So aftercare can be so many things, the sex, the cigarettes, the cuddling. And I have a lot to say about cuddling in a moment, but it could be like, okay, we're going to get you some water. We're going to get you some food. Maybe you had a really heavy scene and you need some first aid. Maybe you need to like talk about what just happened and say, oh my God, that blew my mind. (laughs) And like, or, you know, wow, this is really hot when you did that. Or actually, I didn't really like this. Let's not do that part again. And just kind of connecting. For me, when I'm playing professionally or personally, I always end with a hug. And I always ask if it's okay to hug. And I think like having a hug is a really nice way to end the scene and connect. Again, also it depends on like what you just did. If you had a really heavy, intense role play scene where you humiliated someone, degraded them. Maybe that person wasn't even a person. They were an alien. I don't know what was going on. 
you need to spend more time bringing them back and assuring them, oh, but I know you're a person and I love you. Or even if that's not appropriate, just like, I see you, I know you're a person now and let's bring that back. And the thing that's interesting about aftercare is we, well, one, we don't ask for that really outside of BDSM scenes or relationships, but that's sort of the cliche that what happens after sex. And there's so many people who don't know how to ask for just cuddling and they'll have sex with people just so they could get to the cuddling part, which is why there are now cuddling parties (laughs) and people who are professional cuddlers because people need that affection and need that human contact. I'll just tell like a very quick story about when I went to a cuddle sanctuary and it was really interesting because it was mandatory that you attended this like one hour class about consent and how you could ask to be cuddled and how you could ask for it to stop and all of these things. And this was in a straight space, a hetero space. And I thought, wow, this is actually really good. I want to take some of this back to my classes, back to my parties. This was amazing how detailed, great it was. And then all these people were coming in and it was, okay, it was in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's it's LA, you know, it's Mm bad. And all these extremely attractive, beautiful women are coming in. I didn't pay, but I was not an attractive LA lady who was paying for this, but they paid and they paid to cuddle with men. And I said, wow, like you can't get this like on your own. And I realized it was because this was the only space they knew how to access, that they knew that their boundaries would be respected, that they could have a conversation with negotiations, that it was consensual and that it wouldn't go beyond cuddling. Oh yeah, you had to be completely clothed no naked cuddling. There was no alcohol. This was literally the only place where extremely beautiful women could pay to have an interaction with a man that was consensual, clothed, negotiated, respected their boundaries, and wouldn't go beyond a PG cuddle. And if there are men listening out there, I'd really sit with that for a very, very, very long time because this is true. And I wouldn't know of any other place where this could happen, except for like my play parties and kink spaces and stuff like that. This conversation is not in the hetero sphere and it needs to be. It definitely does. That was such a helpful story to share about that and so poignant. Oh my gosh. Just like that hit me like a wave of. Oh, really? Do you, do you yep. need a moment to sit with it? I know. I know. No, I like, I mean, there, there's a lot of like other funny things that happen, but like when I heard that and I was talking to a couple of other friends about this, like another friend told me that then there's like this whole like queer and like lesbian cuddle scene because they also just want that affection and they don't know how to have conversations about like not having sex and just wanting the cuddle part. And I think it's also, we need to acknowledge that, you know, well, first of all, like, what is sex? Like, we just think penis, vagina, sex, you know? And it's like, I try not to use the word sex because I feel like that means different things to different people. And especially like, I'm queer and it means different things to queer people. Like, is it sex with my hand? I don't know. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes, you know? So I think that it's like, 
I want to encourage people to think about intimacy and all different forms of intimacy and that they're all valid. And, you know, a joke like we said in college where it's like, sometimes you hug someone and it feels like sex. And then sometimes you have sex with someone. It doesn't feel like sex. And, you know, my friend said, I've been hugging the wrong people. So, (laughs) but it's like, we need to acknowledge that like all forms of intimacy are valid if it's what you need and what you want. And if like, what you feel like you need right now from your partner or from a lover or someone is like a cuddle and maybe like a foot massage and just something chill or like a naked nap. I always call it the naked nap. Like, oh, let's cuddle. And like, it never, we never nap. But, you know, that's valid. And if you're like, I just want to get like straight up fisted and banged right now, also totally valid and everything like in between. And it's like, but we need to know what that is for ourselves. So then we can like ask our someone to do that for us. And then it's just going to happen. You know, it will happen for you because you've decided what it is that you want and to communicate that to someone else. I find that when I'm working with clients, it's like a lot of like younger people, because there's been more practice in the conversation about consent and sex, they're really good at getting what they want. And then like much older people like boomers are like straight up having like the most wild best sex ever because they're just like, fuck it, I'm going for it. And they're like, I've already been, you know, I know what I want. And it's like, I feel like Gen X is a little lost. They're the little lost (laughs) Gen (laughs) because they're just like, they grew up in this time where like they didn't have the internet and like, oh, they're not good at like me. And, you know, it's like, I I really see a a gap there for everyone. So I need to have a class just for Gen Xers and just help them, you know, because like the boomers are so rich and they're just like, I'm retired. I'm just fucking having my time. And, you know, Gen X is like, I don't know what I want anyway. But yeah, I just keep going back to like, just really having a check-in with yourself and understanding what it is that you want for things involving sex and kink, but also like, wait, do I really like these socks? No, I don't like these socks. I don't like this weird thing that my mother-in-law gave me. Throw it out. And it's like, I'm, you know, I'm big into Marie Kondo and I find that all like ties into these things because her philosophy is so like, picture the life that you want and then we'll get there together. I find that so helpful. Like, I mean, here's a low stakes example. It's like me as a dominatrix. Like I have to, you know, here are the outfits. Like I, every dominatrix should have, you know, top 10 outfits. It's like a cat suit or what. I'm like, I don't like a cat suit. I don't want to wear that. Oh wait, guess what? The world didn't end. I got to wear something else and it was totally fine. I love that. Like that learning about yourself and about what you want can brought into all these other areas of our lives in such like incredibly powerful ways. I have a lot of clients that talk about that they really just do not know in many ways because they've lived so much of their lives just like being governed by our social structures and, you know, the systems of oppression that are pulling at either way and trying to survive all of those. Then they get to this place where it's like what's happened in life and everything and There's this exchange of like on one side, if I continue living this life this way, you know, I have a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of maybe some sense of security. But, you know, all of us survivors know that actually is not at all true, which brings us to the other option of like, well, if following the rules doesn't keep me safe, if playing by the culture's rules doesn't even allow me to have safety in my body, then do I have this space to actually just like go for whatever I want life to be about? And how do I figure that out? And we go through a lot of exercises around both 
connecting with like what are things that are important, personal values, that kind of stuff, but also tuning into body sensations, you know, and how much body sensations tell us about like what's a yes, what's a no, what's like kind of like a maybe, what's a curiosity and like starting to engage the complexity of those body sensations and how to tune into those in a way that feels really safe and how that can be a bit of a guide. How does communication through scenes and experiences, because a lot of that like body sensation, I imagine definitely comes up in these scenes as well of guiding how things go. How does through scene communication happen? That's great. So again, like before a scene starts, like I've had a decent conversation with someone about like what it is they want to do, what's okay, what's not okay, things like medical concerns, have you eaten today, all of those things. And then, you know, during the scene, I've been doing this, I should say also for almost 20 years. (laughs) And so I've been, uh, it's a long time to be doing this. And I'm very intuitive and really checking in with that person. And I tend to be pretty quiet during a scene. I'm not talking a lot. So if someone really wants a lot of verbal, it's kind of hard for me (laughs) because it's like I'm really paying attention to their body or I can like run my mouth, which is weird because I I love to talk a lot. But in a scene, I'm like super quiet. So I'm checking in with their body and how they're reacting. So another important question before you play is asking someone, well, what does it look like when you're having a really good time? Are you laughing? Are you crying? Are you really quiet? You know, we know the fawn response. And for me, like if someone goes into like a fawn response or a sort of like, I call it the hot dog, look, we're just kind of like, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's the hardest for me to play with because like, I don't know if they're having a good time. And then I have to do kind of a check-in where it's like, you know, that this is only good for both of us if we're both having a good time, right? So just give me a thumbs up if you're having a good time. (laughs) Because if you're not, I want to do something else or I want to do something different. And, you know, I mean, everyone's having an amazing time with me, obviously. (laughs) But, and I want to have a good time. I like to laugh and joke a lot in sessions and play. I mean, it's called play. It's called Mm -hmm. play. It's wonderful. I'm really checking in to see what's happening. And it's like, I always say, this is what we're going to do today. And if it's a new person, I say, okay, well, we're going to do like kind of an omakase and just try things. And if you like something, we're going to keep doing it. And if you don't like it, we're not going to do it anymore. And it's okay to not know sometimes. So doing these check-ins, just really paying attention to someone. I try not to ask too much because then hopefully you've done a good job with your pre-scene negotiations and conversation. But during the scene, I want people to have the best time ever and really go somewhere. And sometimes it is cathartic and sometimes people do cry or sometimes people do have like an intense reaction. But I think that it's, you know, again, from the top perspective, I'm in charge of the scene. I'm in charge of my partner or partners and the onus is on me a little bit more because I'm the director of the scene. And sometimes the sub is in a subspace. Sometimes they feel like they can't talk because they're in that space, or sometimes they don't feel like they can speak up. And unfortunately, that happens because there are bad actors here. There are bad mm-hmm. tops and BDSM people. You know, and I always establish with the people that I play with, like at any time, you can call your safe word. At any time, you can communicate with me that something is not going right. I want to know this. It's very important to me because it's very important to me that we all have a really great time. So I think having that like assurance to people that they feel like they have a safe space to talk about their desires. And also I'm so in the water in this, but it's like 
really wild that like basically random strangers call me up or send me an email and tell me their fantasy that like maybe they've never told anyone else and they walk into my dungeon or they walk into my, you know, Zoom room or whatever. And then we do it. Whoa, that's like fucking wild and (laughs) amazing and also super precious that people are just trusting me with their fantasies. And thank you. I have such deep gratitude because that's tough. Like if I wasn't doing this, I don't know if it would be able to like call a pretty hot girl and say, excuse me, I would like this, please. You know, that's a lot. It takes a lot to talk about our fantasies and our desires and our needs and our wants. Like it takes a lot. I think that's like some of the most intimate parts of ourselves really is what we need, what we want what we desire for our bodies, especially in around pleasure and any kind of pleasure, I think is incredibly intimate and very vulnerable for people to discuss. It does speak to a lot of like radical genuineness for people to reach out and to share that with you so openly and to seek to have those needs and wishes realized in different ways, to play with them, to explore curiosity, all of that kind of stuff. What is it that when we think about like the kink community, what makes the kink community particularly accessible to survivors? I think that it's just because, again, it's like one of the few places where if you're doing it correctly, you're having conversations (laughs) that involve negotiations, consent, and boundaries. And, you know, I've been to some events and places where that's happening and some that it's not. And I just, it's just interesting what feels dangerous and what feels safe. Like one day this will be an essay for me where it's like, okay, I've been to a play party in San Francisco. And if you've been to a play party in San Francisco, you know what I'm talking about. Oh my goodness. The things you have to do to get in there and sign off and do this and do that or whatever. And I throw play parties as well. I have been to a gun rage in Los Angeles where I just like walked in and was able to shoot a gun. I mean, that's like a whole other conversation and can of worms, but like, oh my God, it was literally, I had to jump through more hoops to get into a play party in San Francisco than like a gun range. And it was like, ah, oh, here's a gun. I'm like, really? I could just shoot it? What? Oh no. <laughs> anyway, back to your original question about like, again, what makes it comfortable for survivors to come into this world is that, you know, sometimes people want to take back what happened to them and recreate it in a way that actually is consensual (laughs) and actually is what you wanted. Because maybe it was something that started out with something that you wanted, but then there was no system in place for a safe word or for the action to stop or, you know, whatever happened. And it's like, but you did like something that happened, but not the way that it happened to you. So you can go back and re-record that experience with someone who is safe and who is listening to you. There's different degrees of sexual violence against our bodies. And it's all, you know, traumatizing. And also, you know, the other thing is like, I think like the King community, again, if it's in a good space, will sit with you if you're having a moment that something is coming up for you, because sometimes things Mm -hmm. come up for you and maybe it's something that you didn't think was a problem anymore, or maybe it was some memory that you just didn't remember. And then something comes up and it's like, I see that in spaces like our kink spaces where someone will sit with you. There's like usually a dungeon monitor or a DM or like a place where you can get away from the action and just kind of chill and have a cupcake or drink some water and relax. Or, you know, I also see those kinds of spaces like if you go to like, you know, festivals and fun clubs and stuff, go to the Zendo tent. Okay, the Zendo tent is like where you get 
care if you had some bad medicine or some kind of bad reaction, but there's always people in these kinds of spaces who are the helpers who will see you and say, okay, let's like get you over here. Let's make sure you're okay. And I see that in kink and BDSM spaces and in festivals. I do not see that in other places. And, you know, I've actually been in in other kink parties or other like club spaces where that didn't happen. And I was like, this is dangerous. Like this is actually literally dangerous and someone is going to get hurt. And they probably did, but I'm not there to witness it or I'm not there to hear about it the next day. But unfortunately, it, it does happen. And, you know, again, this is why we have a buddy system where we're taking radical self-care, taking care of ourselves, but also having a buddy. Because sometimes like a general space might not be as safe as it could be. It's very important. Yeah. I've heard from people like getting into even like play parties or dungeon nights, having like interviews off-site with potential applicants, essentially, like before they don't even tour the space. Nobody even sees it until like they are vetted. And so there's Mm -hmm. just so many levels of safety. And what I think is so great about that is, you know, in addition to the obvious of like, there's so much safety here, but that it really teaches us about the values that the King community has and that the culture that's there is that the priority is that people are safe and in a space where they can surrender and enjoy themselves, but also like there's just this comprehensive awareness and mindfulness and caregiving towards all the different needs that people are going to potentially have, you know? And I think that was part of also what stood out to me about aftercare is I'm like, this is so obvious that everybody wants this and everybody needs this as part of any intimate experience, any vulnerable experience, and especially sexuality and pleasure experiences, you know, and it's the thing that we don't talk about. And then here's this community that comes in and says, no, we already actually have it set up. We are just going to talk about in what way, <laughs> what way do you mm-hmm. want this? And if someone's not willing to do aftercare with you, then don't do anything with them. Like, as you're saying, like there's spaces in these rooms that are already set up for this and that it sets up this culture of the community that people are being honored and respected and really, truly loved and celebrated in this very safe, autonomous way. Yeah, definitely. Again, this is like, I'm so in the water of like, this (laughs) is just a conversation that we have. And I thought it was really interesting when COVID first happened, how all of my kink and poly friends were like immediately able to have conversations about their safety. (laughs) And they, it was like, okay, well, I'm comfortable being outside or I'm not comfortable being outside, or I want to wear a mask at all times and I can go for a walk with you, but we have to wear a mask. And it was like, they all were so ready to have these conversations about their body autonomy and what they felt safe doing and what interactions they felt okay about having with other people. I was making so many jokes about it because I was like, wow, now finally, maybe the entire world can finally have a conversation about safety and consent because we were kind of all forced to do it But then like half the world didn't even believe that like COVID was real. So like, you know, we kind of half missed the mark there. But I I think it was good where it finally made people. I always try to be optimistic and hope that we're moving forward. And I think we are in so many ways. I do believe that it forced people to have, unfortunately, sometimes difficult and sticky and icky conversations. But I think that it helped people understand what were needs and what were wants as much as they could in that moment. Or maybe it's something if they're a little bit further away from that, 
they can like look back at that a little bit now that we're feeling okay, we can go out, we can go back and look at that and think a little bit more about like our actions and what felt okay for us then and what didn't feel okay. And again, what you said about like checking in with your body and how does that feel? Like in in my household, we do muscle testing of things, you know, it's like, you're supposed to hold something to your heart. And I don't know, it's my girlfriend is super woo and I'm like half woo. So I'm like, it's something with a heart and, you know, so you just hold an object and just like, okay, how do I feel about this object? Okay. Just like sit with it. Oh, wow. That feels great. Like, you know, or this other thing doesn't feel so great. One of my friends is a college professor in the Midwest. Talk about feelings. They're really far deep down in the Midwesterners, okay? So if you're Midwesterners, you're chuckling. Maybe you are, but you haven't even like let that chuckle get up there yet. But you know, she's a dance professor. <laughs> so all about bodies and acting and stuff. And she said that she had to hire a communications professor to come into class and talk about how to communicate with people because they could not do that. It was just not a skill that they had. And one of the exercises was, okay, who do you have a conflict with? And they said, oh, we don't have a conflict with anyone. There's no conflict here. And she said, okay, when you see someone across the quad on campus and you get that feeling, that pit in your stomach, do you get that feeling sometimes? And people go, yeah. And she's like, okay, that's a conflict. You know, (laughs) that's when you know something is not okay. Like, how do you feel when you're around that person or object? Do you feel wonderful and magical and great? Or do you not go towards the magical, wonderful people? And there's only so much we can do this at certain times. Like, I, you know, I feel like I'm very practiced and good at this, but it's like, I'm going through a thing in my life right now where I'm like, wow, there's a bunch of people in my life that like are not making me feel super magical and sparkly and wonderful. And I'm like, oh man, hell, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not bad. It's not like you're toxic. You're just like kind of a dusty houseplant that I can set outside and I don't need you to be around. You know, it's not just about like someone that makes you feel super, super bad and is super wicked. It could just be like, oh, not feeling, just feeling about you. We want the things around us that make us feel really wonderful, like unicorns and cats. (laughs) (laughs) Hot pink lip gloss. (laughs) Yes. Life is short, y'all. Be in the enchantment while you can. I love that example that you gave with COVID because we can find this conversation of consent specifically to sexuality, which I think is, again, part of patriarchy and us kind of being shoved into the margins around this idea of having agency and autonomy over our bodies. And so we have these conversations only in specific circumstances, as opposed to that, like people who are really effective with communication and consent, it's something that is a part of all of their areas of their life. And they're effectively communicating about this everywhere and able to set up boundaries around all kinds of things that they're facing to make sure that their entire lives and all of their relationships are operating in a way that really works for them. And I think that's so important to share with people. And maybe this is just like my own opinion or thought or just assumption that it seems like when we do limit the conversation about consent to sexuality, people particularly really indoctrinated into patriarchal structures kind of dismiss it as like, it's not necessary or important, or, you know, it's just that like black or white, yes or no kind of thing. When we see really how consent and practicing consent in sexuality and sexual experiences and pleasure experiences helps us really 
restore a sense of agency over ourselves that then is so powerful in all areas of our lives. Yeah, definitely. And when I teach my BDSM 101 class, I walk everyone through an example of a quick negotiation, first for BDSM, second for sex, and third for a platonic situation so people get it. And I want them to practice it in all of those realms because, yes, it's a class about BDSM, but you know, how do we draw the line between BDSM and sex? But also, I want people to take these teachings about boundaries, consent, negotiation to platonic non-kink, non-sexual areas of their lives to feel empowered. If you're feeling empowered outside of the bedroom, you're also going to feel more empowered inside the bedroom. And, you know, the more that you can practice a no in low stakes or platonic situations, the easier it is to use that no in kink or sexual situations. And on the binary, as women, we're socialized to say yes to everything. We take on a lot of emotional labor and femme labor and to not Mm -hmm. say no. And, you know, I was raised by wolves essentially. (laughs) And so I didn't really have a lot of these ideas and things. So that was helpful. I was in an accidentally feminist household. And so it's really helpful to me. But when I see this for other people, you know, I see a lot of women particularly struggle and it's hard to have kindness with yourself because if you grew up in a household that was patriarchal and not empowering women or all of these things, and you left that house at like 18, 22, whatever, it's going to take a minute to unwind all that shit. It is going to take a minute, especially when we're enmeshed in a society where the inequality between sexes is so blatant, which is unfortunate. And, you know, again, I live in Los Angeles, one of the biggest cities in the world, biggest city in the country, super liberal in a blue state, super liberal state. A few years ago, there was a huge Sony leak that displayed the salaries of the company. And guess what? Men were still making a lot more than women. And that like really shook the industry for a lot of reasons, as it should. But it also sort of woke up this bubble that we're in a liberal bubble, but we're still not empowering women the ways that we can and should. When I look at other first world countries and nations, it's really it's really scary because of course there's problems there, but the problems are not, we're not as downtrodden in other first world nations as women because the playing field is more level. It's not systematic. Like we all have access to health insurance. We have access to more equal pay. We have access to childcare. We don't have access to a lot of things in America, unfortunately, that keeps us in really, unfortunately, bad and stuck situations. Mm-hmm. And again, that is not your fault. Like, you know, people listening, it's like, you know, I think about this in terms of like sex and finance, because I, you know, I think about money and, <laughs> you know, BDSM all the time. Like the system in our country, unfortunately, is completely and utterly stacked against women. And if you're like, wow, why can't I make money? Or like, why am I not having good sex? Well, basically because we spent the last 200 plus years making sure that wouldn't happen for you. And we're turning it around. We are turning it around. People like me and Kelsey, like we are just like on it. We are like just trying to make this better, right? We're trying to make the world a better place and like make people happier and get your power back and work through some like bad shit that happened. We're working towards a better and more amazing world. And that gets me so excited. And that does get me out of bed in the morning. And when I see like crappy shit on Twitter, I'm like, okay, 
but that just means I got to work so much harder (laughs) to like (laughs) make it happen. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. I think your words and all of your wonderful knowledge is going to be so supportive and helpful for survivors listening to this. How could people get in touch with you, work with you? How could they take one of your 101 classes if they wanted to? Yes. Well, again, I am Justine Cross, and you can find my website at losangelesdominatrix.com. I do have a mailing list. I'd really love it if people signed up for that. I only send out one or two a week. It's not like, you know, you bought coffee one time and the rest of your life is ruined by like coffee emails every five seconds. And you can also find me on Twitter as Justine Plays or Instagram as The Justine Cross. TikTok until it gets banned as The Justine Cross again. And yeah, all of my classes are all on my website. They're all through Eventbrite. You can find them at losangelesbdsmevents.com. We're doing all of our classes hybrid. So even if you're not in Los Angeles, they all take place at Dungeon East. But if you're not in LA, we will also be offering that online at the same time. And again, if those times or dates don't work for you, all of my classes are recorded. You can download them now on Gumroad. Everything is on my website, again, which is losangelesdominatrix.com. If you're interested in the dungeon, that would be Dungeon East, and that is at dtladungeon.com. So I love when people reach out to me. And again, thank you so much, Kelsey, for having me on and having this conversation. I hope it helped people listening, and I hope I made you laugh, and I hope I made you feel like you want to go do something really sparkly today and practice a no and practice a yes and just, you know, go do something fun today. (laughs) Yes, I am definitely going to practice my know with someone i will find someone we will do it (laughs) (laughs) come to my well we'll talk later but yeah i have a class where i go through this whole thing but yeah it is good i think i practice my no a little bit too much my partner jokes with me (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like no i'm not doing that okay you know you have to do these things oh i don't have to do anything i'm mistress justine cross (laughs) i get away with a lot you know (laughs) i'm very like sneaky and sparkly and like people i just you know i was coming up to my friend like i you know i I hate non-consensual hugs like that's so like but i just like come up to my friend and i'm all like oh hugging her this like big leather daddy and she's like who is oh it's you it's just steve and i was like i know i just get away with everything and she's like you do you really do i'm like "Ah." but it's all good it's all with it's really good vibes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us in this episode and connecting with our badass community. Thank you to Sam Valentine and her awesome team at Fast Forward Productions for producing, editing, publishing, and all around making this podcast possible. If you found something in this episode that resonated with you, Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. This quick but meaningful action supports the show and helps make us more visible to other survivors and allies who might be looking for support and connection. I love connecting with listeners, survivors, and allies. So if you found something in this episode useful or interesting, please screenshot the episode and share it on your stories and tag me at Initiated Survivor. An important and final note, while I am a clinical psychologist, this episode and podcast is not a replacement for mental health care. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Neither the host nor the guests are rendering mental health or other professional advice. And this podcast does not constitute an established professional relationship. If you are looking for mental health care or professional help, please seek it out. We have some links in the show notes that may assist with this, or you can contact your insurance carrier for a referral. Thank you.